So technically, I started the Shame Core series about three years ago, and one of the first people that I interviewed is my friend Forrest Johnson, who has created a lot of the music for this season. I asked him about what his first memory of Christian hardcore was. The first like hardcore song that I liked, uh, it's the vampire song from Blindside that was on the Cheapskates compilation. Yeah, King of the Closet. King of the Closet, right. Before you even said it, I was like, I bet it's going to be that one. We were talking about this song by Blindside called King of the Closet. The chorus goes, I'm a vampire, I'm afraid the light will set me on fire. Presumably, this song is a powerful metaphor about how lost and depraved and wretched and evil we are without Jesus. I've always really liked um, music that feels a little bit unhinged. And, and I liked also that I, I found like some kind of metaphor about being a person and being sinful and not wanting to acknowledge it in that song. Mm-hmm. It was like somebody else was saying, yeah, it's that awful and we should feel like it's right that you hate yourself and you're, you feel that like violently against about who you are and what you've done sort of a thing. I was just going to say, like, I was thinking about like how much of Christian hardcore, like iconography is all skeletons and zombies and all of that kind of stuff. And I feel like a little bit of that was like trying to represent how we saw ourselves and our sinfulness. Like that's why it was okay to be like everything be like skulls. I don't think I would have ever articulated it like that, but like, I think that's what I got out of it was like, that's representing what it's, what I feel like. As I mentioned in the last episode, in a surprising turn of events, Blindside once appeared on Conan O'Brien's Late Show. My next guests are from Stockholm, Sweden. They're here tonight with a song from their brand new album, Silence. Please welcome Blindside. For a moment, they struck out into broader culture and even ranked 18 in the U.S. mainstream rock charts with this song called Pitiful, which was mostly singing and a little screaming. The sort of thing that could make it onto The Late Show, following on the heels of bands like Linkin Park and Limp Bizkit. But I know, as I hammer those nails into your beautiful hands, your eyes to try to search for mine, But for those of us deep into Christian hardcore or punk or metal and familiar with the Tooth & Nail catalog, this toned-down version was not the blind side that we knew. Welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. My name is Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, a writer and neighbor. And together we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This is season six, and we're calling it Shame Core Records. 
back before Blindside played on Conan or toured with Hoobastank or appeared performing a song in a skater movie called Grind, they were, for so many of us Christian kids, the entryway into Christian hardcore. They had a very short but impactful career at Tooth & Nail Records, only releasing two full albums with them. But if you ask anyone who listened to Christian alternative music at the end of the 90s, Blindside was usually the introduction to this type of extreme Christian music. So I was really surprised that you told me that you liked Blindside because they are they were at some point a hardcore band. Well, they're probably the first hardcore band I ever listened to, which people listening to this podcast might resonate with that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because they had like one song on a sampler and then I bought their first album. Well, oh, because it was like some singing, some screaming. Well, he had a pretty voice. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. I loved it. Uh-huh. I mean, again, 13-year-old sheltered homeschool kid. It was like, wow! That's true. It's really different than like MXPX, like, meh, 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 meh. And I remember distinctly having to show my mom the liner notes and having to explain to her that these were Christian young men. And like, we had to read every lyric. I remember hearing this song, King of the Closet by Blindside, when I was like, I think I was probably 14. And just... Like it was, I had some friends who were playing it, you know, and the initial response was like, is this okay? Like they're screaming about being vampires. And I remember being like, this doesn't sound Christian, but it must be. I think I had the same reaction that your mom had in a way of like, how could this be Christian? I've never heard anything like this before. The lyrics aren't talking about Jesus, but also like we get to be kind of bad. And I think that was a lot of people's experience with Blindside. Hearing just that song on the sampler or on the video, you know, it's just really different than what anything else that we'd heard. Also, I, I you know, there's such a problem with Christian music being sort of like copycat music. Mm-hmm. Blindside for me was like outside of that, like a new thing, but mm-hmm. they copied somebody? Yes, so. Okay, so that's, I mean, all of my memories of Christian, you know, growing up Christian, I'm like, I'm pretty sure every Christian band copied somebody. But, yeah, yeah. you know, in Blind, I was like, oh, this is the first I've heard this kind of music. Mm-hmm. And I didn't hear that music on the radio either, like pop mm-hmm. radio, so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I didn't find out until a couple, actually, it was when I was a teenager, Refused is this band that is also from Sweden, and... They have this wonderful album called The Shape of Punk to Come. And basically, like, Blindside is very similar to that. And Blindside's album came out, I think, one or two years later. So they're right on the heels of it. So it's funny. Sweden had a tiny, like, tiny movement of hardcore. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Refused was, like, super, like, leftist socialist. Like, the first lines of the album are, I've got a bone to pick with capitalism and a few to break. Oh, dip. So I wish Blind Tad had said that. I know, right? But instead, they were talking about being vampires. One thing that I really appreciated about Blindside was their really thoughtful lyrics. In a certain light, this was almost a playful way to talk about this theological truth of the human condition. But the teaching itself, that we are broken, depraved wretches with nothing lovable to mention, that has had a devastating impact on so many of us. And in addition to the vampire metaphors, there are so many other powerful metaphors that were used to teach this supposed truth and shape the way that we saw ourselves. 
Hello, my name is Kate. I'm pushing 40 and live in the Midwest of the United States. I put out a call on social media asking people to share how this teaching impacted them. To answer your question, I grew up in church hearing Jeremiah quoted, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I had an oppressive sense that I could never do anything right, which fed an unhealthy perfectionism as I tried to be at least less bad. And as a disabled female in this sphere, I received a triple helping of never being enough. Church functioned as an abusive relationship that I eventually left to save my faith and care for my well-being. When I was a kid, I was told because you sinned, your heart was no longer clean. Therefore, you don't belong with God. So it really struck a chord when I first read Brene Brown's definition of shame, which is the painful experience of believing that you are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. The parallel was unsettling. Hey, Crispin and DL. This is Elise from North Carolina, and I'm 33 years old. I have never enjoyed hardcore music of any variety, but I can very much relate to the message that my heart is dirty. To this day, when I hear someone talk about following their heart, my brain like flashes an emergency sign and starts screaming Jeremiah 17.9 at me. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked was a message that I got early and often at the Fundamentalist Baptist Church I grew up in. One particular sermon illustration has always really stood out in my mind. The pastor started with a pitcher of clean water and poured a glass for one of the men in the congregation to drink. Then he progressively added weird things to the water. Food coloring, spices, some coins, I think. It was a whole bunch of stuff. And he would pour little glasses after each addition and ask a man, always a man, in the congregation if he was willing to drink it. This came to a peak when he put one drop of toilet water into the pitcher. One drop in a big pitcher. Surely someone would still be willing to have a drink. Obviously, no one was. This, we were told, is what sin, one drop of sin, does to our hearts, completely contaminated by even the smallest drop of sin. The ripples of that kind of teaching have followed me through my whole life. Pride when I stayed within the moral lines drawn for me, deep shame when I didn't. It's taken me well into adulthood to be comfortable with the choices that I've made for my life that are very different than what that church community would have wanted for me. I love the podcast. I so appreciate all you're doing to help us messed up youth group kids sort through how we were impacted by evangelical teaching and pop culture. Thank you so much. So this idea of the main point of the gospel is fixing our broken or dirty, sinful hearts that God cannot stand. Um, we've had some recent experience with this version of the gospel. So you wrote about this in your book. So we lived in an apartment complex that was like really targeted by local churches to do outreach because it's where poor people lived, it's where immigrant and refugee families lived, and then... We lived there, and so we saw, like, the Bible bus show up every Thursday. Remember the Bible mm-hmm. bus? Mm-hmm. And they would have, like, all these good-hearted kids would come and try and teach the Bible. And some people seem to uh, love it, but, of course, for our Muslim neighbors, they were like, this is really creepy. Like, why are you trying to convert our children out from under us? Like, yeah, it's, like, really disrespectful, obviously, to try and convert somebody else's children. I would be super mad if mm-hmm. people from other faiths were trying to do that. Mm-hmm. To my kids, so that makes sense to me, but they ended up doing like a VBS one summer and like gathering the kids in the middle sort of courtyard. And so it was like right outside our front 
Right, our back patio. <laughs> so I strapped my baby to my chest and took our daughter. She was five or six, right? And just listened to... I, I wanted to be on the edge because all the people eating this were like white people. And so... Even me just being on the edge of it, a lot of the kids assumed I was, like, a part of it because I was a white lady. Um, and that was, like, really upsetting to me. But I had also done these exact kinds of things called five-day clubs in, uh, you know, quote-unquote, inner-city Portland, like, way back in the day. And so I was having my own feelings of, like, guilt and shame mm-hmm. and, like, I used to do this. But, yeah, just remembering the whole five-day clubs thing, it's like, it's like the color bracelet approach to the gospel where you can have 15-year-olds tell this to little kids in really simplified terms. And, of course, there's always the black bead Mm -hmm. (laughs) that stands for the blackness of the heart. And, yeah, they did this, like, illustration, one of these skits that started off with somebody having, like, a white cloth heart. And then it threw out the skit as the person did bad things and didn't listen, like, to their mom and were mean to their brother. Like, the heart got... All the, like, normal things that kids do. (laughs) They would, like, pour this, like, rusty brown liquid onto the mm-hmm. white cloth heart. And so the heart got dirty and dirty and dirty. And, like, all these teenagers are doing this, getting, like, showing the dirty heart to the kids. And they're like, this is what happens to your heart. And everybody's like, whoa. And then mm-hmm. when you accept Jesus in your heart, it turns white again. And, you know, I was just sort of, like, looking at all the kids in our apartment complex. Some of them, you know, come from really hard home situations some of them are just like their families have to deal with so many systemic barriers you know that my family never had to face like and just thinking like how is this what Jesus would want to say to them is to tell them there's something horribly wrong with you and you have just messed up your entire inner core by disobeying your mom one time you know I was Mm -hmm. like this is not what Jesus would do. Jesus would just go play soccer with them. Like, I just had this really intense sense of like, not only is this not the gospel, it's like the opposite of the gospel. Why do you think it's the opposite of the gospel? Because I don't think Jesus came to shame people who are suffering. Mm -hmm. I think Jesus came to liberate the suffering. Mm -hmm. So that's why it just seemed opposite to me. Like, what? You know? Yeah. Um, And all these kids, like, the last thing they needed was for someone to tell them they're bad or that they're dirty. And in fact, I saw that adding on to systemic inequality, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. So to me, that was a perfect example of like, this is dominant culture theology that actually oppresses these poor kids. Right. Not to mention, you're going into a complex with a lot of black and brown kids and you're saying white is is good. And here's, if your heart turns brown, it's bad. I totally agree. Like that is not the good news. That's not good news. Yeah, and it's just interesting. Like, I I also want to think about the ways, like, this simple, like, gospel, individualistic gospel prayer. It really hinges on kids saying, like, I'm sinful, I'm a wreck, I need Jesus. When what's so interesting is, like, I think Jesus shows us in the scriptures that the whole point is not for Jesus to wash us clean you know, every right. day we're going to hurt people and we need to confess and repent and repair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus is like, I'm here with you and I love you and I'm here to show you that God loves you. And, you know, we, we were told that stuff, but all the images, all these colors, all these stories, they really actually negate that very premise. And so, even as an adult, I really struggle with, like, does God like me? Does Jesus like me? And, and it, I need to sort of recapture, like, the imagination of a child, which is why it's so horrifying to me 
the ways we try and mold a child's imagination. So, like, even this morning, I woke up, you know, me, I wake up kind of sad and kind of frustrated, and I was like, I'm just a tiny little bunny, and God is like a gangly teenager who's really good with animals. And I'm just going to pretend that this gangly teenager God is holding me in his palm and taking care of me. Yeah. You know, and I was yeah. like, okay. Like, I it's love just- that. Yeah. <laughs> really, we don't give kids very many images or metaphors that are really helpful. The metaphors that we give that are really powerful are about our sinfulness or brokenness. Yeah. The Bible is, you know, a really interesting chock full of weird and wonderful ways of talking about God. And I do remember as a kid being pretty, pretty taken by this idea of God as a mother hen, you know, Mm. who hides her chicks under her wing and and stuff like that. I'm like, man, kids get that. Mm -hmm. And that's a really comforting image. And kids need comforting images. As you know, Christmas, studying attachment, we need to give kids these images and metaphors of God as mother, God as protector, God as co-sufferer, God as co-creator. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like kids are inherently primed for all that stuff. And instead, what do we say? The focus is on you and how bad you are. And Uh here's the deal. I feel like growing up conservative, everybody's like, kids really need to be told how bad they are. I'm like, I think kids get it when they make mistakes and when they mess up. Not always, because developmentally, obviously, there's some stuff there. But, like, is that the the number one problem in our world, Christmas, is that people think too highly of themselves? I will say no. Okay. (laughs) Reading the the training about these bracelets, there are all these things like, what what to do if a kid doesn't believe they're a sinner? Like, how to convince the kid there is i love it who are these kids that are like nope (laughs) i'm a god among men (laughs) don't talk to me about sin i love that who are these kids i want to meet them did you already talk about how your grandma made these oh my gosh no yeah she just would she would get stacked she didn't do the bracelet she did the felt books she would get stacks of felt and just so and so and so and so and then send them like overseas to missionaries mm-hmm. right to yeah. hand out so yeah. this isn't your generational legacy or trying to atone for that yeah. right now Kristen? Right. and then i think there's this other piece of like when we start with this basis of you have sinned therefore you deserve eternal punishment Oh my gosh, we hadn't even got, we hadn't even gone there. I wasn't even thinking about that yet. Now we're talking. There's something fundamentally wrong with you that means that you don't deserve love or belonging. You don't deserve connection with God. I want to put a trigger warning ahead of this because this is just so upsetting. But I remember uh, when Eric Garner was killed. Wait, you I need thought, to probably specify what the trigger warning is for. Trigger warning about uh, about racism, and spiritual horribleness. Somebody said, well, the wages of sin is death. So Eric Garner just got what he deserved. And that is like... That's saying the quiet part loud. (laughs) The quiet part loud. Oh my gosh. It's really sad. Yeah. I mean, that's... and, And we... The thing that's so hard about living in the United States is that we just see that played out over and over and over again. And we've seen... The poverty of conservative imagination to address these tragedies, and instead it it does have to go to the logical conclusion, which this is what what people deserve, especially if they are not white. And it's it's just really horrifying. And I think that 
this focus on our sinfulness as being the most true thing about who we are, which is kind of like what they're saying, right? That's what it all hinges on. That's the main problem. It really either implicitly or explicitly obscures the fact that everyone is a child of God. And people would say, like, you're not a child of God because you're sinful until you put your faith in Jesus. Well, exactly. So when I was in seminary, I had to take a few seminary classes to get my master's. And there was one day where we were going to pray for the persecuted Christians in Iraq. And I was like, well, there's a a lot going on in Iraq. Can we pray for everybody? Like, what about the Muslims there? And they're like, no, no, no. Like, it just makes sense that you would pray for your brothers and sisters. I was like, but everybody in the world is our brother and sister because we're all children of God. They're like, no, 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 no. Like, they're under a common sort of grace because they were like created, but they're not truly children of God. And that's like, like a reformed right. theology. And I was mm-hmm. like, ah, I'm so confused. Right. You know? Well, I was thinking about that. Like it really separates the world into good guys and bad guys. Like everybody's bad, but you can be considered good if you put your faith in Jesus. Otherwise you're bad. So like the the good guys aren't really good, but they're considered good because of Jesus. And then the bad guys are bad guys. And so if they are bombed or incarcerated or whatever, like they just are getting their due punishment because they have rebelled against God. All of that really gets in the way of us seeing people as beloved by God, no matter where they are. I, I, I'm not saying I don't believe in sin and it's not important to talk about sin. I think it's very important to talk about sin, especially with adults. We need to be having way more of these conversations. Right. So not in your heart is black until you pray a prayer. It's like you're born into sinful societies where you, you know, can enable abuse, where you can oppress and exploit other people, where, you know, all these things can happen and we need to be in constant conversation, confession, repentance. And that's why, you know, the historic Christian church does have like these rituals of confession, repentance. It's not supposed to be a one-time thing. And in the scriptures, we see this as a biblical theme. It's on the people in power to confess and repent and lament. Um, It's not on the most marginalized to to lead that way. I had a chance to talk with Danielle Schroyer, author of Original Blessing, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place. This was another book that was really helpful for me to shift how I relate to God. In contrast to the idea of original sin, original blessing is based in the idea that the most true thing about us is that we are beloved children of God. And that goes not only for us, but for everyone that we know. I didn't really fully attend a Baptist church because I wasn't that faithful in going, but I moonlighted at a Baptist church in my youth. And um, I got to see that chasm thing that they do in youth group, you know, where like you're on one side and God's on the other and Jesus is across in between. But, you know, I remember even as a teenager being like, okay, but when you walk across and you're still you separate from God, they didn't tell me anything changed about that. I'm just like closer to God, but I'm next to God, but still separate, that doesn't fix anything. Do you know? So that chasm Mm -hmm. thing always just seemed like, this is weird math, you know? I'm not really sure that this Mm -hmm. is fixing any sort of problem that um, I think lies at the heart of why people long to not feel that separation, which we do feel. That's a human thing that we experience. Mm -hmm. But um, the way that we talk about what that actually is 
ontologically is super problematic. So the gospel that I grew up with was we're separated from God because of sin. The cross eliminates sin from the equation so that we can (laughs) be with God. So from this original blessing framework, and I just want to add in a, a lot of this framework is looking at like the history of theology in the church, right? So this idea that sin is the problem is a more recent framing of what the gospel is. How would you explain the gospel? The gospel is the story of God with us, made manifest in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's just one deeper and more direct and immediate way that God has shown us that God loves us intimately and deeply, and that even crucifying his own son won't take that away from us that it Mm. that that even that can bring life because Mm. god's love is always bigger Mm -hmm. i usually start by saying i'll be thinking about the cross for the rest of my life you know Mm -hmm. but one of the ways i think it frees us is that it really (laughs) puts a period on the sentence of like i love you Period. You know, I sent you my son. He was innocent and beautiful and good. And he only told you things that were going to bring you life and wisdom and a more abundant way of living your your one human life that you have. And what you did is that you murdered him (laughs) and blamed him for things and decided you couldn't handle hearing what he had to say. And even as you did that, I am here to show you that I'm not going to leave you or forsake you and that actually what I'm going to do is return your violence for my love and my life because there's nothing that you can do that will separate me from my love for you because it is the most powerful, true thing in the whole universe, period. Mm -hmm. I often think about how humanity does its worst to God. And then God comes back like three days later and says, peace be with you. Right. Isn't that insane that all of the things that Jesus could say, like if it were me, I would have had a nicely sarcastic quip. (laughs) Be like, guess who's back? (laughs) You know, thought you could get rid of me. You know, (laughs) no, Jesus comes and says, peace be with you. You know, and then looks at their doubt after all that and is like, do you want to have breakfast? Like, I made you some fish, (laughs) you know. By the way, try the other side of the boat. I'm really just so trying to help you. So, I've gone to multiple churches where the pastor reminds us that we're undeserving wretches. I had one place where that was like, that was the prelude to communion every time. Uh, Crispin. You're putting, you're putting so... your hands in your, <laughs> your face in your hands. Um, so, yeah, tell me <laughs> if it, tell me why you find that problematic. Yeah. Okay. So, let me start with this. I'm vehemently open table. And the reason is because if Judas gets communion, everybody gets communion. This is not up for debate. You know, the idea of you having to deserve communion completely undoes the point of communion, which is that God has chosen 
to be loving, gracious, forgiving, steadfast to us. It is not about how we are to God. And I do think that there's wisdom in knowing that, you know, I think that understanding in, in New Testament letters about, you know, if you have something between your brother before you go to the community table, you should work on that. We have turned that, I think, in Western uh American Christianity particularly into sort of a kind of like works righteousness thing. And we've forgotten that that actually has Jewish roots. So it's the same, right? And on the day of atonement, you realize that God atones, but that you have work to do. It's not like you get to go and say, well, I don't have to pay anybody back or ever say I'm sorry or stop drinking or like whatever it is. You don't just get off the hook for that because once a year you go to the day of atonement and let God do all the work. The point is, that if you have work to do, if you believe in this atonement, if you believe in this new birth, then you put in the work and say, I have something to do. So that's what I think that is talking about, that sense of if you have something that's between you and another person, um, it's not that you don't deserve communion. It's, a, it's that you maybe won't be able to experience the fullness of communion because this is holding you back. Again, it's about what's bringing you home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would always say, though, as a pastor, like, also, when you take communion, you remember what home is, and then it helps you empower, feel empowered to go do that work. So, mm-hmm. I wouldn't make somebody do a checklist before they come and get it for that reason, too. Um, I think it's half yeah. the reason Judas felt bad later in the story is because he had communion with Jesus before that and thought, mm-hmm. I, know what this, I know what this connection feels like, and I, I can't mm-hmm. believe I violated it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, the question of deserving, I think, is it's just a moot point. I, I mean, God didn't put me in charge of the universe because I would pick a whole lot of people that don't deserve to be loved. Um, uh-huh. This is why I'm not God, right? Um, I don't think it's a great idea, particularly, but God certainly does, which is why I kind of boil down the premise of original blessing in my book to we're in a relationship with God and God started it and God's sticking with it because it's really not about whether we deserve it or not. It's just that God has chosen to love us extravagantly. And the whole entire story of scripture from beginning to end is about how God shows that commitment to us, even when we quote, don't deserve it. But also too, like if you look at the way the whole world operates, like the creation, God doesn't look at trees and say, well, do you deserve the sun today? Or, you know what I mean? God isn't looking at this group of sheep or horses and say like, I don't know, should I make the grass green for you today? Like, everything is designed for generative connection in the whole entire world. That's the way God set up the whole thing. And so, deserving doesn't really, that question just doesn't really get to the heart of the way God set it up, you know, for us or for anything. So, yeah, what... I wonder, thinking about original sin and this concept of original sin and basing our identity around that, uh, how do you see that connected to shame when it comes to when you're doing spiritual direction or just, you know, your time walking with people? Yeah, um, it's always shame is always right there because, you know, Brene Brown does way better work about this and says it better than I ever will. But shame shame is about something that you feel as who you are. You know, it's about your personhood. Whereas guilt can be externalized to an incident. Mm. Again, it's that I acted like a monster versus I am a monster. And when shame gets activated, 
um, what happens is that we shut down. Mm. We just shut down, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and when we shut down, we also close ourselves off from that that connection that we have to God's love for us. Mm. I mean, it's still there, but you know, there's a sense in which you allow it, mm-hmm. right? And so in shame, you just say, oh, I can't take it. I cannot have that love. Mm. I'm a monster. You know, I'm a vampire mm-hmm. or whatever. <laughs> like, isn't that the other, yeah, uh-huh. uh, the hardcore quote? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, okay. If you if you decide to to say that that's the totality of who you are, you are limiting God's healing medicine from reaching you. Mm-hmm. And why would you ever want to do that? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so shame is just deeply unhelpful. It's incredibly, um, it's stultifying. Mm-hmm. Um, it ossifies us at our worst, lowest point, which I wouldn't wish on anyone, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, guilt can guide us into, into a place of, of repentance and understanding and compassion for ourselves, mm-hmm. compassion for other people when they mess up. Like guilt can be used in a way that is, is beneficial and good. And shame literally never can. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that your subtitle is putting sin in its rightful place. So what, what does that look like? What I'm hearing you say is like, we don't just th- like ignore that part or throw it out. Right. And I, I think that's the first sort of gut reaction to people against original blessing is I think, oh, well, if if you don't say that we're sinners inclined to evil all the time, separated from God, then obviously you're saying that we are all made of stars and rainbows and we're just, you know, one Instagram feed full of amazingness all the time. We are a mixed bag all the time because that is actually what it means to be human and there's no getting out of it so you can try your very best to be the best sunday school obedient do it all by the books person and someone you know is going to die and it will feel unfair because it is you will experience suffering and it may not be because you made a bad choice but it's because somebody somewhere far away made a bad choice we live in a super complicated world and sin the rightful place of sin is not to say it's at the center or foundation of who we are. It is simply part of the mix. But if we put anything other than our belovedness in God at the center, or at the foundation of our understanding of ourselves, we will actually never be able to contemplate our own sinfulness in a way that's transformative and helpful. The people that can most courageously look at their lives and say, I'm so sorry. I, I really thought about what I said to you on that phone call and I was really harsh, you know, and just take ownership for that and be responsible about it. Those are people who have a strong sense of self. And the reason they have a strong sense of self is because it's not just them that they're counting on, you know, they understand that underneath that selfhood is this soul that is based in the unwavering love of God. And every spiritually mature person that we both know we could name them for the next 10 minutes and we would all be like, yes, they are really mature and take responsibility for their sinfulness. And they understand when they make a mistake, they do what they can to repair it and they move on. And the reason is because they know God loves them. And because they know God loves them, they can look at those things and say, I can actually courageously look at this and know that I'm not going to fall apart. So what happens to people when that sinfulness is like, this is like the base of who I am? You can't ever work your way out of feeling unworthy when you base your whole life on unworthiness. 
it's so hard to get around that trap too because we've put such righteous language around it i think in some pockets of american christianity that oh my gosh the more i beat myself up the better christian i am and it's like mm-hmm. uh actually what god intends for you is for you to have an abundant life that blesses people so mm-hmm. unless you're doing that better by thinking that then you should ditch that because it's not at all working and that's mm-hmm. not works righteousness that's just how the world works <laughs> like mm-hmm. um we are meant to live like graciousness in life and we can't be gracious people if we don't experience deep grace if we're always going through this focusing on the, I don't know if bad is the right word. If we're focused on that in ourselves, that's going to be, that's what we're going to also see in others. Yeah. I have tried to practice compassion for, you know, seven, eight years now. It's been sort of my goal of like compassion, compassion, compassion. And what I learn is the more I have compassion for myself, the more easily and naturally and habitually I can have compassion on people that I think a decade ago, I would have had a little bit of a hard time about. That's not to say remotely that I don't get up and have warnings where I'm like, if I were God, I sure wouldn't love you or give you another chance. But it's less, it's less charged because, you know, when you, when you spend enough time in prayer and just in abiding with God, that compassion is, is, it's the wellspring. Like if we trust that God knew what God was doing when God set up the universe to be interconnected and um, relational and based on love and not, mm-hmm. you know, teetotaling, then we have to trust that if we act that way and live into that rhythm, that there's some life in there for us too. You just mentioned spending time abiding with God. I'm thinking about people that would be listening to this thinking like, I spent years doing my quiet time (laughs) (laughs) and that's not where I ended up. Yes. One of my core messages as a pastor and now as a spiritual director is that just because a spiritual practice works for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Maybe the way that you get into it or approach it or need to set it up for yourself in your day is going to be really dependent on what you need and how, where you come from and what where you are in life. That's going to make that look really different. I'll say, too, again, as somebody who moonlighted at a Baptist church in our youth, man, quiet time never worked for me. And it's I probably felt the least connected to God in quiet time. It was more when I was, you know, walking my dogs or reading a book or I don't know, sitting on my rooftop looking at the sunset. And so, um, when I talk about contemplative prayer, the reason I think it's so powerful is because it actually helps to take our mind offline. And for me as somebody who's often stuck in her head, and it's been so powerful to me as as a person, just allow the love of God to envelop me for a certain number of minutes per day without trying to earn it or reject it or make a story up about why I should earn it or what I'm going to do with it, Mm -hmm. you know, how I'm going to make good on it. Like just all that BS that we come up with in our minds. I think that's, that was at least for me, part of what I heard in that quiet time is like, you're, you're checking off a box or you're, you know, you're just making sure you're not going to have sex on the weekend or go out and party. Like it was all just about limiting. Right. Mm hmm. This is like kind of heartbreaking to think about now, but probably for the first, like until I was like 30, I thought quiet time is like the time for God to tell me all the things I'm doing wrong. Right. Um, yeah. 
so it was like every like every quiet time was just like feeling guilty about things, which is not doesn't like actually like make me feel very good about spending time with God or feel very lovable. Yes. And that's not a that's not the first time I've heard that. I think that's a very common experience for people. And it's pretty mind blowing when they realize like in spiritual direction or something that they're like, wait a minute, that is my inner critic voice and not God. And I'm like, (laughs) yes, Mm -hmm. God doesn't sound like that. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, when you sit just to be with God and let God love you as who you are without any strings or stories or weird reactions, like it just sounds like it feels like love. That's it. That's all that is, you know, it, there's, it's actually ineffable. There's no words for it because it's beyond words. And so I don't know, I don't think we're, we're teaching our, our young people or our people in church really um, how to cultivate that sense of awareness with God, which is heartbreaking. Yeah. So when we think about original blessing and original sin, what are the political implications? It is interconnectedness that we need to know. Mm-hmm. Here in 2021, mm-hmm. what we need to know is that we are interconnected and that we have been sold a whole bag of lies mm-hmm. when we believe that we are independent individuals, that we just get to like wake up and make money and not think about other people and like begrudge our taxes or whatever. Like this whole, you know, the whole concept of privilege is, is, hinging on this concept of this like Western individual who pulls himself usually up by his bootstraps. Right. And like, that's what I deserve. And that's what I get. And that's what I'm going to earn. Like all of this is, is so in our water and original blessing is like, Oh no, babe. Like, no, this is not (laughs) how God designed the world. So there's no way to be spiritual without acknowledging that interconnectedness that is definitively political because politics is just what we do when we're together right and so when you acknowledge that we are together in everything you start have you have to start asking questions like why aren't we raising the minimum wage and what about health care you know and how do we make sure that children who are raised in trauma have the care that they need to find therapy and find a safe place to grow up and you know education is you know what i'm saying it just goes on and on when we acknowledge that we are all in this together um it you 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 can't but change the way that you confront the world you know and engage with the world so i want to i want to hear your take on genesis 3 what do you think genesis 3 is about genesis 3 is the beginning of our wisdom journey It's where we start to practice what it means to be a spiritual human being in a complex world of good and evil. Mm. The wisdom of Genesis 3 is that there is this time when we have to awake from our innocence that this is a story of growing up. It's not a story of the Mm. fall. It's the story of an inevitable growing up when we realize that the world is more complicated than we thought and that we are more complicated than we thought. You know, we thought we would never talk back to our parents and then we're teenagers and we talk terribly back to our parents, you know, or we never thought we would skip class or whatever it is, right? We realize that we have this capacity in us that is um, not meant for our spiritual well-being. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the way that that traditionally Western American Christianity and really Western Christianity in, in its totality has, has 
dealt with that part of us just to shove it down or to just name it evil and to say that it is, you know, it's ruined us all forever. And the Jewish understanding is that you can't have a full human being without these two inclinations in yourself. But you have to have them both. And so Genesis 3 shows us in this beautiful story the complicated nature that that comes to us in. Like, oh my God, what happens when we figure this out? Well, you know, we fumble around, we hide from God. God gives us even better clothes and is like, bless you. Good luck with that. By the way, it's going to get way more complicated when you leave this place, you know, just as a heads up. I think it's so important, too, that the apple has both. You know, there's not a good apple and a bad apple. It's just the apple. So do you want nourishment? Well, guess what? In this world that we live in, you don't get anything just one or the other. You know, it's everything's a package deal. And wisdom comes when we figure out how to manage those um, polarities and, you know, tensions within our own self in ways that are are loving and giving. Mm, wow, yeah. I can feel myself relax a little bit hearing about that. Uh, because, it, uh, you know, I, there's this feeling, I, going back to this whole thing of like, I have to be really good in order to be close to God or for God to like me. Yeah. And this idea of like, this is just what being human is. Yeah. When it's handled as like, okay, we're all just learning here, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. If we could just all approach each other that way. Like mm-hmm. if we see somebody tweet something and you're like, why, right. you know, well, yeah. they're learning, you know, and maybe just coming out of a pain point for them. We're all just learning. We're all outside of Eden trying to figure out what it means to balance these really powerful forces within us. Okay, I have a question for you. If you could create a better bracelet for kids, <laughs> oh my gosh, what would you do? think about that for a minute i know what i would do i figured you did well actually no, i'm just thinking about this right now i would do some sort of a bracelet which um like invokes this thought of like your name being written close to god's heart or in god's hands because that's like a theme in scripture like mm-hmm. your name is close to me i knew you before you were born you know like some sort of relationship so i'm like what if there was like a bracelet that had the kid's name on it that they could wear and like when they saw their own hand and their own name just be like wow i'm created like god created me and mm-hmm. um, my name is close to god at all times i don't know yeah i actually really like that idea if it could be something like woven with their name which of course like you know you run into a lot of logistical things but you know i think about like you knit me in my mother's womb i like that a lot the thing is i just don't think the amazing work of jesus pointing to a god of incredible sacrificial love and redemption and resurrection is really portrayed very well by (laughs) these wordless bracelets (laughs) I agree. Okay, I'll go out on a limb and say that. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where DL is often talking about weird bits of Christian media. Find us on the web as well. 
Also, we love getting emails from listeners. You can find the links to our website, handles, and email in the description of the podcast episode. Support the show on Patreon and get monthly extra episodes on evangelical culture for as little as $1.50 a month. DL's book, Myth of the American Dream, is available anywhere you get your books. And lastly, artwork for this season was designed by Zach Bard and theme music by Forrest Johnson. Thanks for listening.